So I opted out of those and would get zero. And I would just focus all my energies on the listening and the speaking. And guess what? Within three months, I had skipped two grades in that class I was at because even though I was getting zeros on the written, I was far advanced than even some people who are ethnically Chinese. I played to my strengths. I said, I came here for a purpose and this does not serve my purpose. Speaking, this is what people do. People speak and they listen. ADHD Rewired, episode 207. This is the show designed for those of us with really good intentions, but a slightly wandering attention. My name is Eric Tivers. I'm a licensed clinical social worker, coach, and speaker. The website is ADHDrewired.com. We know that starting is the hardest part, so let's get started. But first, let me tell you about this. If you are new to the podcast, welcome. ADHD Rewired is so much more than just a podcast. A big part of what we do is online video-based coaching and accountability groups. Right now, registration for our spring sessions, which begin April 9th, is underway and we are filling up quickly. We have three groups of 12 people each. Section one meets at 8.30 a.m. Pacific, 11.30 Eastern. Section two meets at 10.30 Pacific, which is 1.30 Eastern. And our third section, it's already full. We meet Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays using Zoom video conferencing. We work through all the challenges around planning and time management, as well as things like self-confidence and self-worth, really developing that healthier relationship with our ADHD. Well, like so many others, I joined this group because I wanted to perform better, which to me meant conform better to master something I have attempted to do my entire life, which is to fit in, pass for normal, and become more like the very people that I really didn't identify with, and honestly, most of the time didn't even like. And yet it has been my entire life's quest to become better at that. What I've learned in the last 10 weeks because of the safety and security of this group, and for the first time in my entire life, having a small circle of intimate friends with whom I feel completely comfortable just being me, I learned something so much more valuable than what I came for, which is that I'm enough, I always have been, and I've been looking for something that I never really needed. I needed something so much simpler and something that's always been available, but I never saw it before. And that is that as far as I know, this is my one and only life. And I've used up quite a bit of it, trying to be something and someone that I'm not. And from this point forward, I don't have to please all of them. I only have to connect with a few of you. And that's what I intend to do. And I just know deep in my heart that my life is going to get better and easier and I will perform according to the standards that I choose to set, not the rest of the world. I cannot thank you all enough. And Eric, I genuinely like so many times in my life can say I really didn't know what I was getting myself into. Only this time I'm grateful. So thank you so much for that. These groups are intense and are designed to help adults with ADHD make big changes in their lives. 
We've had well over 200 people experience ADHD Rewired Coaching, and this group fills faster and faster every time. To learn more, go to coachingrewired.com. Registration interviews are being held Tuesdays and Thursdays through March 15th. You can schedule your registration interview at the website. The website again is coachingrewired.com. Support for this podcast comes from Patreon patrons. I want to thank Jamie and Rebecca who recently became patrons. And if you are listening to this early enough on February 28th, you can still join our patrons only adult study hall from 1030 to 1145 Central. That's 830 Pacific, 1130 Eastern. Not sure what adult study hall is? Now imagine a bunch of people all on screen together, all doing the stuff that they tend to put off, the stuff that I call important, those things that are boring, but important. If you become a patron, you can join our Dell Study Hall on February 28th if you're catching this early enough. Now, as of this recording on February 22nd, we still need seven more patrons by the end of February 28th to hit our February member goal. And if we hit our February goal, patrons will get to be part of a patron-only mastermind session where two patrons will be selected to get help and support around one specific area of your life. Your support helps pay for my production team that I really could not do this podcast without them. It cost me over $450 a month to produce this podcast. If you get value from this podcast, please consider giving a monthly donation of $5 or $10 a month. If you could do more, awesome. And if you only do a dollar a month, that's great too. Patrons get cool perks like exclusive content, webinar replays, patron-only events, and recordings of me playing piano. Show your support for ADHD Rewired by going to ADHDrewired.com slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. And thanks. Welcome back to another episode of ADHD Rewired. Today's guest is Kwame Dugan. He is an attorney by training, an investor by experience, and an advisor by design. Well, that's some wordsmith right there. Wow, some real word crafting. Uh, Kwame earned his Juris Doctor from Columbia University and a Master's of Science from a London School of Economics, attending as a Rotary Ambassadorial Scholar. I was a little worried that I wasn't going to be able to pronounce ambassadorial, but I think I did okay. Previously, Kwame practiced commercial litigation with global law firm Shearman and Sterling. Uh, Kwame's journey overcoming poverty and an undiagnosed learning disability has been documented in various publications and is the subject of a TED Talk. In 2015, Kwame was honored as a trailblazer by the National Bar Association's Young Lawyers Division. Kwame, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Happy to be here. Glad, I'm glad we were able to, to do this. We, we tried this last week and, and yeah. you know, ADHD just kind of popped up in, in the ways that it does sometimes. So Very we, kind of you. Yeah, <laughs> kind of you to say, to call it ADHD. More like... Uh, 
my ADHD and our persistence uh, <laughs> somehow mixed together and uh, got this, got us together. Yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a listener and, uh, and a fan. And uh, yeah, happy we were able to find um, some, some time for us to get together here and just sort of share. All right. So you, you have a pretty interesting story. So um, take us back a, a little bit. We don't need to have every detail of the childhood, but you say you grew up uh, kind of uh, family was poor. Yeah. And so talk about your, maybe your schooling a little bit, because you weren't diagnosed yeah. until 2006. Is that? Yeah, that's right. Uh, so I grew up uh, in Toronto, Canada. I was, I was born in, in, in the West African country of Ghana. Uh, I'm a city boy through and through. We were, we got asylum in, in Ghana. I mean, in, in Canada, uh, when I was fairly young and I was just a curious, curious kid who took on everything I could take on. And I managed to use technology uh, in ways that uh, I think I could share more about that uh, later, but in, in ways that should have signaled to me and others that there was something odd about me. Um, because I, I use technology uh, almost like a crutch while other friends would play with technology. For me, it was like I saw every piece of technology as a tool and I just figured. What and this is when you were younger. When I was young. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, I, I talk about this in my TED talk, but, you know, I learned how to tie a necktie. Um, using a Palm Pilot, which is, you know, it's, I know people in these days, some listeners may not know what that is, but it, uh, it, it predates the modern smartphone. It wasn't a phone, but it was just like a, a, a notepad. You could do all kinds of things with it. I got apps and, and uh, I didn't know well, my father wasn't with us. It was just me and my mother. And I had to rely on the neighbor to tie neckties. And I was scared to death that I would never get a job if I didn't figure that out. So I, I looked for every tool possible. I looked at books. I couldn't figure it out. But there was an app that just had a, a way, uh, just had a step-by-step black and white method to doing a Windsor and a half Windsor. So that's, that's how I learned how to tie neckties. Uh, and I was also, I, I used to read the dictionary for fun. I would play Boggle alone. Like I just did all kinds of that's, things. That's some super yeah. nerdy stuff right there. Super nerdy stuff, right? <laughs> but you know, but what drove it, right? Ask him, what, yeah. what drove someone like me? Yes, partly I was a refugee. Yes, so there's a fear there. But what drove really me to just try all these things that would probably in some cases scare people. Like I learned how to canoe. I learned how to swim. I'm, I, I passed a lifeguarding exam. Like I, I just did stuff that in some cases was was crazy and some I, I would go up to, I would talk to authority figures and like, you know, ask for things that, you know, just other people didn't, did not ask. Like for. what? Uh, like the rims on the basketball net did not have meshes. And I was going to launch, I went to the Rotary Club to try to get them to <laughs> get a campaign so we can get meshes on, on the nets for the neighborhood. Like, like I was what 15. Who does that? And it was, <laughs> Who says, no, this is not right. Let's go do something. You see a problem and, and instead of saying, ah, well, what are you going to yeah. do about it? You ask the question, what am I going to do about it? And about went it. and did something about it. Go do something about it, right? Or find a tool to do it. And I do that to this day. So 
when I got to the UK, um, I, 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 I won a scholarship um, based on you know, academics and, and community involvement and, and just the trajectory I had. Um, it, was for, it was a really competitive scholarship. I got to London School of Economics, where it's more like the brightest people in the world in the international relations program. And I was sitting in a class and I was able to process everything in class, even in sometimes I was sleeping in class. But, you know, that's, that's beside the point. I would understand what was going on. I was able to analyze it and discuss it with, with, with the level with, with comfort. Mm-hmm. But my submissions in writing were just not up to snuff. And so my teacher was like, well, you know what? Your writing needs improvement. So let's take you to a writing the writing center. And I went to the writing center. The writing center guy was like, uh, you, you write just fine. It's your organization that's off, but I don't know that it's something that is strictly doing writing. Go talk to this specialist and they'll run some tests and see, you know, we can figure out how to improve your organizational skills. They ran the test and, and it was an all day affair. So what, what kind of test was it like uh, neuropsych testing? I don't know what you call it. I have the exam somewhere, but it was, I guess, yeah, neuropsych. It was like a bunch of games that I had to play. And okay. then there was some physical stuff. So I had to stand up and like walk forwards and then walk backwards. Um, I had to recreate it. I had to say the alphabet backwards. I had to put figures into order. I had to match mm-hmm. certain things. I had to remember text and then sort of explain what it meant. Mm-hmm. And I did really well with the analysis and the reading comprehension. And I was, I think they said I was in like the top 2% and sort of these, these things. But when it came to remembering the alpha, saying the alphabet backwards and putting shapes in sequence, I was like a, a third grader. Mm. And I was like, what? <laughs> and that's a sequencing was, and working memory secrets and working memory right and but i had a superb aptitude for languages because of my ability to i guess there's a, it's, it's it's mimicry is sort of like the, the pejorative term but there's another positive word for that when you're able to sort of it's almost akin to empathy empathy and i was able to take what she was asked and then and whatever words were made up and we were able to remember them. And, and, and what, what it was, was I was creating ways to remember these things automatically that would allow me to sort of feed it back to them. But I questioned the whole thing because I got a diagnosis of ADHD and dyspraxia, okay. which is similar to dyslexia. But later on, I think uh, another professional who, who, may, who worked with me thought it was actually dyslexia. But okay. I was able to figure out that the, the basically spatial awareness, time awareness, and the passing of time, mm-hmm. <laughs> real challenges, <laughs> organizing things, sequencing, and uh, anything that required like m- multiple moving parts being placed together. Like basically anything requiring me to create a calendar was particularly difficult and committing to a date in the future, anything or thinking about and projecting in the future was just really tough for me. And then that's what affected my writing was because while I understood what I wanted to say, I had difficulty laying it out in a manner for other people to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, when I got, to, and this was right before I got to law school, which would, is today still the, 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 one of the hardest things I've ever done and requires 
a lot of information gathering and organizing. And uh, and I, I, I can I think the only reason, not the only reason, but one of the reasons I was able to do well and pass the bar exam, which is like, you know, it's a pretty high failure rate yeah. in New York was it's a, it's a no notes exam. You can't have any notes. So I just meant going back and figuring out the answer based on what I'd learned that I can do, mm-hmm. but in open, and most of the exams in law school are open book. That's a trick. Open book means, you know, who wins? Yes. I mean, the super smart people, but the ability to organize notes was what mm. gives you sort of the, allows you to win. And um, it was a real challenge for me, but uh, I, I, you know, I'm grateful to the, the, the NIH, the UK it's a system where they, they, they invest in the sort of the healthcare to the degree that someone picked up on that. And I was able to get that support at age, you know, in my twenties when uh, in Canada, I mean, I probably would have picked it up somewhere, but uh, I just wasn't, sort of involved at that high level and I, I didn't I didn't get that so that's uh that was how my diagnosis came about and so how long that was in 2006 you said right that was in the beginning of 2006 okay or late 2005 2006 when wow. I was in the UK okay so it's been about 12 years uh since diagnosis yes. you also uh shared with me when we were talking uh earlier that you also uh, were diagnosed with sleep apnea I was uh, that came about through by happenstance because it was the Rotary folks. Uh, I was volunteering at an event with, with kids interested in business. And after my session was over, I went and just sort of sat there and fell asleep. And an older lady came up to me and said, you know, you, you, you should look into apnea. You might have it. And I said, why? She goes, you're, you're snoring. <laughs> That's like a sign. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't, you know what? I, I did not take her up on that <laughs> uh, until I became a professional. So my first year, I remember this very distinctly falling asleep in most of my uh, really interesting lecture. I had at 830 in the morning in the back and, and snoring and like having to be woken up. And it happened in libraries as well. I just heard so, a, a, a story on NPR this morning. There um, on, on uh, Chicago Public Radio, there was they were interviewing an author uh, that uh, this book that wrote wrote a book called uh, "Cringeworthy: mm-hmm. Exploring the Emotion of Awkwardness." Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I, when I think about that, like the, you know, being woken up because you're snoring in mm-hmm. class, yeah. but that awkward <laughs> awkwardness yeah. of that. It's, it, it's awkward <laughs> until you get used to it. And that's the thing you have to remember, right? Like it's, it's super awkward the first few times. And then it's like, Oh, Oh, okay. Thank you for that. And uh, I, but you know what I did? I learned, I learned to learn in a state of drowsiness. So huh. I would go to class and this was in high school too. I actually remember sitting be- behind the Dannys. There were two guys named Danny in one of my classes, English class. And I was so bored in that class. But because they were really tall, I could sit behind them and the teacher wouldn't see me. <laughs> so I would stay there. But if you called on me, which I w- would happen, I'd be prepared because I was listening. I wasn't tuned out. I was just listening, but I knew I was just worn. So I would pick it up and I was able to like, and I'd also prepare ahead of time for class. So knowing that I prepare ahead of time because I probably fall asleep in class, I couldn't rely on learning anything directly, like that being super attentive. So I, I combined those two and uh, it actually helped me when I got to like um, to college 
And then, you know, when I figured my apnea out, it, it sort of, I didn't have to rely on that as much, but it, it gave me some skills um, in terms of preparation for class. So I, I, I learned I'm an experiential learner and also an in-class interactive learner. Even if I'm not necessarily interacting, I need to have someone who is an interactive participant on the mm-hmm. other side. Be able to, like, to dialogue with them and, and process yeah. the ideas. The process, yeah. Dialogue is good. It's, it's ideal, but even if it's a monologue of sorts, but they're animated, uh, I and I'm there in the space, I'm picking things up, there's background noise. Like, that works for me. There's stuff happening. Like, I used to say I thrive in chaos. Mm. Right? I think a lot and, of people can relate to that. Yeah, I do. I do. When, when things are really set and organized and orderly, I, I don't have a, I'm not a superhero, but when things are going go nuts, uh, I have been, and I mean, employers have said this about me. I have an sort of an eerie calm about things. Uh, and to the extent where they say I could benefit from being a little more concerned when things are going crazy because mm. um, I, I, it, the calm helps to a point, but then for it, it also it sometimes signals a lack of concern, though that's not the case. Mm-hmm. It's just that I'm trying to be logical and I'm mm-hmm. thinking there's not much I can do here. Then let me, let me do the things that will help. And, and, and this, this skill helped me uh, survive a, uh, a fire. How so? Oh, okay. I don't think I mentioned this. Yeah. So one of the things that happened in uh, a few years ago was when I was living in Beijing, China, um, learning, I was there in part to test the theory of that, um, that clinical psychologist who said I had an aptitude for languages because I had studied French for four years and could barely order a glass of wine in a Parisian restaurant if needed. So I thought this, I, I was, I said, I was skeptical of, of my diagnoses in part because of that claim that I was, I had an aptitude for languages. So I gave myself five months, no, six months to learn Mandarin and to test my ability to learn what is considered the hardest language to learn. And I said, you know, six months, I'll, I'll, have, I'll know enough whether to see if there's something worth pursuing. If not, then I can just quit and know that I give it my shot, I can walk away. While there, uh, at the end, near the, near the end of my time, I woke up suddenly out of bed and saw smoke coming into my bedroom through a door, which was uh, slightly ajar. I, <laughs> in that moment, my, this is, <laughs> I jumped, I, I turned, I, I was on the left side of the bed, I turned, put my feet on the floor, grabbed a towel that was nearby, covered my nose and then went to the door to feel, put my hand near the knob to see how hot it was and then pushed the door closed and then proceeded to grab a couple electronics under my bed and then go to the balcony, open the balcony door, close the balcony door and then yell for help on the Mind you, I'm on a six-floor walk-up. What was happening, what I realized when I woke up was that a there was a 
the core of the fire was in my living room. It was, it was a small apartment, but basically uh, I couldn't see in my living room, but all I saw was smoke billowing and flames. And okay. it was so hot that the glass of my door, I was a glass, my door had two glass panes, the top left right corner had popped out open and a smoke was coming through and oh, no. the breaking of the glass is what woke me up. So because I was calm, my thoughts were to suffocate the smoke. Don't grab the, don't grab the, the knob because it might be really hot, but do test it, put your hand near it to see how hot it was, which would give you a sense of how hot the other side was and cover your nose because most people die from smoke inhalation, not the fire itself. Like this was, this was my, my thought. This was my thought, my thinking right then and there. So I <laughs> closed the door, went back, went to the back room, back, went to the balcony and then closed my bedroom door as well because if the goal is to suffocate right. the air, which is what flames the, the fire, you don't want to leave the balcony door open. And that's your best chance of survival. And uh, it, it was my best chance of survival. Eventually, people heard me, and someone, some people tried to kick the door down, but they were unable to because of a lock. And so I covered my nose and made two attempts through the smoke, Whoa. hoping that I wouldn't hit anything, any major flames. Fortunately, um, I, I, I think it had, it was starting to die. It had sort of sit, it was sitting in the corner somewhere, and then I got through the. First time I went, I was covering my nose and it was tough to breathe and got to the door, but without breathing, I just held my breath and I was trying to kick open the door and I couldn't. So I went back to the balcony, gathered more breath, took more in, and then made a second attempt, went back and I realized that even though the people outside had kicked in the corner of the door, they were unable to get through the, the, the bolts. It wasn't a dead bolt, but it was still, I guess, strong enough to keep them out. So I was able to unlock it, open the door get out and just like kind of cough. And uh, wow. that was, that was where being calm, I think really saved, you know, my life. Wow. And related to that was, you know what? The reason I was able to even get the help was because five months into moving to China, I was able to function without uh, any help from language from anyone else. Cause I was huh. comfortable. I was fluent enough to live a daily existence without, any need for um for translation do you think part of of that was the you knew you needed to learn the language because you're in a, an area that you're not going to be able to communicate unless you learn the language so there was this absolute like need versus this just a novelty of knowing the other language i think that's a big part of it now mind you i also created that life i designed that because once you, in the area I lived in, Wudalco was known for a lot of foreigners because that's where the classes were. Now, a lot of people lived in buildings that were mostly expats and foreigners. Mm-hmm. I made the decision to live in a neighborhood where there was almost no foreigners. I was, I was certainly the only black person there. And there may have been one or two other non-native Chinese. What, what was the experience uh, of that like for you? It was interesting. It was really it, because it, it, the concept of, of black is different everywhere in the world. Mm. And they, for a number of the, for most, most people who had, who were in the cities, for them, it was like, I looked like Will Smith 
Wayne Wade or um, I'm trying to remember this. There are a couple of names that came up where they thought I was somebody. And I, did, did I you ever go along with it? Was that? <laughs> I, you... with, I think I went with the Wayne Wade one <laughs> a little bit, which was interesting. I think because, the, the, you know, the NBA had made some real inroads in, into China. Uh, when I would go into areas of the city that were very foreign sort of touristy areas, mm -hmm. I would get, but touristy, but not expat dominant where people from like foreigners would visit like the, you know, Miles tomb, the great, the, the, the hidden, the hidden, um, then emperor's hidden city. I would be followed and chased and by people who just wanted to take a look at a black person. And when my black friends came to visit, it was like paparazzi was chasing. We ran. Really? There are times where we ran just from people wanting to like stare at us. It was just the cur curiosity the of curiosity. it. Curiosity. Oh wow. And there were other times where we would go to areas where they didn't that weren't were very off the grid, and little kids would run from us because they were so scared of seeing someone so different. Interesting. And this happens. This I know people in and was East Africa where they saw. I think they call Morungi's white bear. A friend of mine told me his father remember crying and running whenever he saw a white person growing up, right? Because it's this foreign being that looks nothing like you've seen in your life mm -hmm. walking towards you. And and then there's a similarity. But you know, you've seen dogs, you've seen animals, you haven't seen someone else like like your parents, but like with this like dark hair and like this hard hair and then this this figure. <laughs> but but what freaked them out the most is when I actually spoke the language. It just, I remember one, one experience. This is, this one is great where I was in Shenzhen, which is near Hong Kong for business. I was, I was helping some African companies do trading in Africa. And there was a university tournament on basketball, uh, a sports tournament. And I was trying to find a way to buy a ticket back to uh, Beijing because as other ADHDers might you know, gather, you don't necessarily plan your, your ins and outs. So I, I had the one way and I figured out, find a way back. I just wasn't sure when and how. And I thought, let me get a flight in, you know, that, that day. So I kept looking for a place to buy a flight. And I knew how to, again, at that point I was, I was fluent. So it wasn't a matter of like language. It was just a matter of finding someone who could show me where to go buy a ticket because I couldn't buy it online i didn't have like uh so the a local credit card so i just had to go find an agent and people kept passing me on to other people They're like oh no go i'll speak to them go speak to this person they speak english mind you we had this interaction in mandarin <laughs> okay so then i go to somebody else who was supposed to speak english but they didn't really speak english they studied english it's a difference <laughs> it's like me studying french so i would just speak Mandarin with them. And then eventually a police officer who was around on a golf cart decided to take it upon himself to help me because uh, I don't know if he really believed I was one of the athletes or he just wanted to tell other people because we were driving. He drove me in his golf cart through crowded streets and it was honking and having people jump out of the way and they would be screaming at him and he would yell back, oh, he's an athlete. He's an athlete. I have to get him. To <laughs> he needs help. He's an athlete. Justified his, his, his crazy so interesting. Driving. So he would go from place to place and ask them if someone spoke English. And 
they would say no. And then I would ask them why I'm looking for someone because I was looking for a ticket agent. Mind you, no, at no point was English spoken, yet he knew exactly what I needed and what I needed, but he wanted, in his mind, it could not be done without an English speaker. So eventually we found our way to a hotel that had a ticket agent. We go into the ticket agent's office and he goes in and asks them, do anyone speak English? And they're like, no. So I, I get involved and I'm like, all right, well, I just need to buy Mandarin. I need to buy a ticket. You know, yeah, I'll buy, well, I'll buy, nigga. He said, you know, basically I was buying a ticket to Beijing and they understood what I needed. So we just started negotiating like what I, what I needed, what dates were available and all that stuff. The, the, the cop is in the back looking and I sort of sense something done on him that, huh, maybe he did not need an English <laughs> and, and because he just realized he'd gone to about two other people, we'd gotten to the agent and we had been speaking, mind you, for about 20 minutes without an English speaker because anybody in his mind because there's no way someone that looked like me would be speaking something that he grew up and him and the only people who looked like him spoke mm. could understand. It, it didn't, it didn't, didn't dawn on him until like I was about to buy my ticket that I, he and I were sort of peers in a sense. Like I, I, I wasn't, he felt like he was, I was dependent on him. And so he wanted to, to, to help. And that, and that was the thing, like a lot of people that were re- really wanted to help, very helpful. Right? I mean, the reason I was able to even speak the language was people were willing to engage me. And I was making a fool of myself, but they were happy to do it. Um, and eventually I, I made it less of a fool of myself. And, uh, and it was great. It was kind of interesting to see him sort of back out without saying bye. Cause I think for him, it was sort of uh, just done and, it dawned on him, like maybe this guy has, maybe he's onto something. And, uh, and that was really enjoyable. That was really enjoyable. It's kind of like, so, so there were, there were points where it was, was annoying where. Well, what know, about that was enjoyable? It just sense of, of, of achievement. Hmm. Like I came here with nothing, with like no expectations of, of success. I was told by the grades I got, well, I did well in French, but I couldn't speak it by my experience of that, I was incapable of doing this thing and languages. But what it really was, was I was in, I was not suited to that, to learn something that is a very interactive experience in a, in a classroom setting and with reading languages. So when I got to China, one of the things you have to learn when you first go to classes is you have to learn how to do um, write characters. And guess what characters require? A lot of sequencing. You have to draw them in the right way every time. So I would get literally zero out of 10 often on those first exams. On the written part. On the written part. But you know what I did was I said, you know what? I'm an adult. I'm not not in school. I'm not a high school student. I'm opting out. So I opted out of those and would get zero. And I would just focus all my energies on the listening and the speaking. And guess what? Within... Three months, I had skipped two grades in that class I was at because even though I was getting zeros on the written, I was far advanced than even some people who were like had were were uh, ethnically Chinese. Mm. I played to my strengths. I said I came here for a purpose, and this does not serve my purpose. 
speaking. This is what people do. People speak and they listen. People don't write. I have a computer. This is what technology is for. And so I could write because I knew how to speak, because I knew how to, I focused on the phonetics. The, and I learned how to, to read. I could you type in the phonetics and the, the character would come up and I'll select it. So I was able to have conversations with many of my Chinese friends in, in characters. I just didn't know how to use my fingers to draw, to draw it, mm. to, um, to draw it, but I didn't know how to read it. So I found a workaround that sort of gave me a huge advantage. So five months in, I was comfortable. And some of my classmates were sort of still working on, you know, the rote learning, which children do. So they were teaching adults to learn like children. Mm. But because of sort of what I learned, my experiences and my sort of comfort level with my sort of diagnoses, this is after law school, I, I decided to take, take risks and, uh, and better myself. And I know a lot more of your story too has a lot to do with, uh, of knowing yourself in order to design a life that is best suited for yourself. Yeah. Well, because if, if for me walking away from being like actually bilingual, because I'm, I'm a, what you call a passive language learner. So I understand French. I understand Chui, a Ghanaian language, uh, a fancy. I can, I can translate it, but I can't speak. It. Mm. I can't create sentences in it. But with, with Mandarin, because I went in and said, I'm going to be, I'm going to give this my sh- shot. And if I can't do it, I'll walk away. No one at least has tried. My fear, for me, the fear of regret is what helps me design the kind of life I want. I don't want to regret not trying this thing. I don't want to regret not telling other people of color that, you know, ADHD and mental health, these things are things to talk about. These are things that not just put you in the box, but can be in a... In, in the right context, an advantage because it, it doesn't go away if you don't talk about it. So your life ideally should incorporate those things that make you who or what you are. Uh, and and I'm, I'm now sort of going through my, my third cycle of that, you know, having gone and, and achieved some of these goals I set for myself. I'm now in a point of process of taking assessments and working on sort of things that would that, will let me connect all of the, the dots. And that's what my motto is. My mission is to fearlessly connect the dots. You know, I've got the law piece, I've got the finance piece, and then the personal finance. And now I'm trying to design the life for myself and helping others do the same. Let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about how you're, how you're connecting the dots and how you're helping others design uh, life for themselves in that, in that light. Um, when we come back from our break. We will be right back. I want to thank all of you who purchased the ADHD Women's Palooza Encore Package through my website. There is still time to purchase all 33 recordings, which come in both audio and video. This also includes my session around perfectionism. Go to ADHDrewired.com slash palooza so they know that I sent you. That's ADHDrewired.com slash palooza. That's P-A-L-O-O-Z-A. Turn good intention into amazing actions with the ADHD Rewired Coaching and Accountability Group. This virtual video-based group coaching program meets three times a week. Improve your productivity, develop better habits, experience the true power of supportive accountability from members of our own tribe. Learn, grow, and connect. Learn more at ADHDrewired.com. I hope to see you there. 
That's ADHDrewired.com. And prepare to get your ADHD rewired. Join us every second Tuesday of the month at 12.30 p.m. Central Time, that's 10.30 a.m. Pacific, 1.30 Eastern, for ADHD Rewired's live Q&A. And I just made signing up even more ADHD-friendly. Go to erictivers.com slash events, and you can go there once and register for the next six to eight live Q&As all at one time. So sign up once and you won't have to remember to register each time. You'll get automated email reminders and it'll even save it to your online calendar. I'll be answering your questions live. You can ask them in the Q&A box on Zoom. And if you've always wanted to be on a podcast, you can ask your question live. Just make sure you're in a quiet location. To register, go to erictivers.com slash events. That's erictivers.com slash events. And we are back. Um, during during the break, uh, Kwame almost got kicked out of the room that he scheduled for an hour and a bit past that point, but it all worked out. So, because I wrote down what we left off on, let's let's continue talking about how you're connecting the dots. Because if I didn't write that down, there I would have no idea where we left off. <laughs> uh, you know, um, that's one of the, the the tricks. And one there's a book, there's a great book. Uh, I think how to ADHD friendly ways to organize your life. Great book. Yes. Book. And they talk about having a pen or pay pad ready so that no matter if you get disrupted, just, just write down the last thing you were thinking about. That's right. All right. Because so I call that, I call that leaving, uh, leaving myself a trail of crumbs. Trail of crumbs. Yep. So, uh, so when I'm, if you're working on a project, um, and you know, I think this is also helpful if you tend to get into hyper-focus because the time we, the reason I yes. think some of us tend to get into hyper-focus because we're like, I don't know when I'm going to get this focus back. I don't, yes. right. But then the hyper-focus drains us so much that like, you know, the su- subsequent, uh, uh, efforts, you know, whether it's the next day or, or, uh, or whatever, and I think it's where some of the inconsistency of our attention and yeah. focus, uh, comes in. So when I, when I leave myself that trail of crumbs, I'll write, a full sentence that says, what did I just finish doing and what I would, when, what I'm going to do next if I were to continue working on this. So when I, when it's time to come back to work on it, it's not so hard to pick it back up. So otherwise it's like you, you find out you just worked an hour on something you're like, Oh, wait a minute. I've already done this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. See, that is something that I, I am, I still struggle with and I, I, I am better now because I do, I try to put, I use an app uh, called Action Ally, and what it does is you you write down the action you're gonna take, and you put how much time, and it's and it just basically blocks. It's like a reminder mm. on there, like this is what you said you're gonna do, and then the next step is how we're gonna where are you gonna start first. Oh, nice! And I like that. Uh, it, when I live by it, I'm super productive. Um, that's the, the when. Right? right, right. Our best tools work best when we use when them. Use them. <laughs> so if I happen to not have Chrome, a t- browser tab open to something else that I forgot to finish, then I am amazing at getting that stuff done. But I, I don't typically. So I try to, what it does is having that timer going, it tells me that, you know, I, tend, I have to take 10 minute breaks after. So what I'll do is look, you just, Use that the whole time you said on something else. Now we're gonna have to click it again. Are you gonna 
gonna you gonna embarrass yourself if you go through the same again. You just just do it. Just get it done. And eventually, uh, I will because I, I I do it in thirty five minute chunks. It's supposed to be twenty five minute, but I I think I work. You talk about the Pomodoro Pomodoro technique. Pomodoro, yeah, yeah Pomodoro technique. Yeah. Using that, I think there are lots of tips and tricks out there. The 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 I would encourage others though to um, avoid going sort of. I, I think it's the ideal though is to iterate on what you already have rather than finding something completely new. That's one of the, what I found for myself is when I try to use, uh, say, a tool that was uh, completely foreign to me, mm-hmm. it, 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 everything requires a learning, right? There's going to be a learning. Well, that's, what, that's what all learning is. It's yeah. building on what you already know. It's, yeah, the, reason, no, it's the reason right. why we, when we're looking at, at child development, we look at why we teach kids shapes before we teach them letters, because you have to understand the concept of shapes to understand how to, how to make letters, right? I mean, it's, it all builds upon. Ah, right. So, yes, I'm, I'm, still, I'm still a child. <laughs> and I tell my other children out there that uh, they, they need to, you know, just play, play with your stuff. But I will say this. I just had, I have a little girl who um, is sort of just a year and a half, just over a year and a half. And I have so much fun with her. And I think, honestly, being sort of the ADHD has a, a super creative element to it. Mm-hmm. So when she starts to do things where, you know, maybe, you know, grandma or mom might be like, oh, no, she's going to put this thing in this box and this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I like <laughs> I see where you're going with that. I can, I can do one better. And I'll put this in. That's and, awesome. and so, yeah, we play. So it's our, I think, I think it allows you, if you let yourself, um, to see others. And that's what ADHD does. I think it's because you're sort of differently, you're differently able, you are able to see sort of some degree what another person who can't do the things you do and how they use tools to get what they want. Right. So my little girl is like, why is she pulling this thing over here? I'm like, well, if I were her, I'd probably be using that to get leverage so she can climb and then get closer to the thing. And yep, that's what she did. So in some ways, I am able to sort of foresee what her next moves are because it's like I, <laughs> I'm thinking in similar fashion. Uh, it's, yeah. It sort of sounds like you're, you're a good sort of analogy of your life is that you've been you've been living like life is an improv stage and everything is yes and you take what happens yeah. and it's like yes and, and yeah <laughs> yes and improv and experimentation uh there is another a great book called um it's about designing your life and the, the, there's a word the word there's something algorithms for life i think it's called algorithms for life you know i listened to that i had a hard i had a hard time with it oh i loved it yeah I, I, being as logical as you are I, I it was it was almost too logical in some ways it was freeing because hmm. what it said was for example if you're going to look this is the example they start with if you're looking for apartments there are only your opt- optimal number is 37. So once you hit 37 of things that meet your criteria, jump at the next one. When you're someone as curious as me, you're, and, and sort of a risk 
taker and sort of and 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 some level of optimist, you think you know what? Maybe the next one will have just what I'm looking for. I'm willing to risk losing that one for the next one. Mm. And when you can take this algorithmic approach to it, then I can just say, you know what? Yeah, maybe it might get better, but it's going to be the differential between what I'll gain. The delta is is, is too high. So let me just accept what is here. And and that's what I mean by it It gave me a level of freedom to hear like someone has figured this stuff out. Now, let me ask you a question. Does, Does that to you feel more intuitive? That which, which like Use, using more of an using more of an alg- uh, a algorithmic approach to problem solving. Not at all. Okay, because 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 I was wondering because you said you're you know no. you're so logic based, and for me, one of the things that I've been really um doing more of is really like honoring and trusting my intuition. You know, in, in grad school, we're, we so drill about evidence based practices. Everything has to you know it's like if it doesn't have a randomized uh, double blind placebo control study, like it's junk science. You don't even look at you know it's like. And I don't know, like, like I, as much as I still value that as part of how I see the the, the world uh, from from in, in ADHD, there's I also find that our gut and our and our intuition is a type of intelligence that, while it may be difficult to measure, I think is really valuable and and um, you know is worth leaning into. And I think there's, so that combination approach is sort of where I kind of find myself at. So I, I would like to maybe explore that a little more. Okay. Because here, there's a tension there. This is there's mm. a real tension. And I think mm. I know audiences love tension, but <laughs> this is not just for Bring the it. show. This is genuine. <laughs> this is genuine tension because here's here's what my intuition does. Okay. Um, my intuition says I have a flight at five. Not okay. intuition. My, I have a, my my ticket says the flight's at five. The boarding time is at four twenty. Great time, by the way. And <laughs> what? So, so I know at three twenty is sort of like you should definitely be there before three twenty, Kwame. And 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 I know it takes say take twenty minutes to get there. So really, I should leave the house no later than three. When two fifty nine comes around, there's a good chance I whatever it is I'm doing, I am not going to be. Like, oh my goodness, it's three rush. Right. Because my intuition tells me it's a domestic flight, Kwame. You've got your Nexus pass, and you know how these people work. They're people. You can talk to them, you can make it work. And these are, I don't say this out loud. I intuit it. That, 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 and, well, that's, that's the rationalization. And I actually don't think we're, we're on this context, on this particular issue. Mm-hmm looking at you're, you're dealing with something around time and planning mm-hmm. that we shouldn't probably not be using our intuition, right? <laughs> it's this idea of, of, I talk about our, our time sense is nonsense, right? right? right. It's, it's, we have to use time wisdom and that's based right. on what do we, what does our gut tell us? Right. What does experience show us? That's what wisdom is. So when I'm looking for an apartment, then what should, me relying on my intuition as to keep going till I find that that right place, or just go with what the people who have looked at the the logic have have have, 
I've done the studies on this say will work because unless unless I have something better, I, I want to defer. And I think that's, that's sort of the approach I take to some of the things that are in some ways beyond my control. It's unless do what people who have do what the successful people have done, unless you have something better. And I think part of it is knowing yourself. Like, are you the type of person who can go look at a couple apartments and sort of know what feels right? Or are you the kind of person that would want to see 400 apartments and then you're just happy with like anything because you made yourself miserable looking at every single apartment? I'm likely the one who's going like, to, I mean, you know, when I went to New York, when I, when I first started with the law firm, I think I took so the apartment in like the eight, the, the second week I was, it was, and I went back and I was like, oh, it took me two weeks. I'm so, I'm so tired. And she was, and then the woman who was my, you know, one of my, my staff member was like, uh, that's pretty quick. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. Because mm-hmm. you know what, when I saw something that sort of made my needs and it was close, I, I could triangulate. I was like, oh, wait, you know what? And the price is right. This, this works. Boom. So then I think I did it. But what my, what my experience would have done, though, if I if I had not sort of had the time constraint of I need to be settled in so I can focus on this thing, mm-hmm. I would have honestly, and I thought maybe I have gone and looked for a few more things just to just to eke out a little better, or let me negotiate a little more on this. That's my inclination. That's so that kind of goes to the, the, these ideas of, of people are either satisficers or maximizers. Mm-hmm. Are you familiar with that concept? I didn't know. I'm not familiar. Like, so, so, so people who are satisficers, they, they find, you know, they, they see a couple of options and they go with the one yeah. that, that, that basically meets most of their needs where the mm-hmm. maximizer is they want to make sure that, that they get the mm-hmm. absolute best value. They'll compare mm-hmm. every detail of everything mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they'll spend so much time trying to save yep. a dollar. Right. Yep. Like, yep. and so I think there's a lot of perfectionism in, in the, the maximizer uh, sort of tendency as well. Yes. I'm a, I'm a maximizer, but what happens is you end up at three o'clock in the morning asking yourself, why did you do this? Knowing you were going to pay just a couple bucks more if you just booked that damn flight. But now you if you if your time is worth money, a minimum of two hundred dollars an hour, you have paid three, three times a flight already just on the time you spent trying to find the right coordination. And that happens because instead of just flying from Boston to New York, you thought to yourself, oh, I can probably get in something in Providence and I'm going to just find the right coordination to make it work. And, and that's, that's my life often is mm. when there's, instead of just going from A to B, I look to, I guess I'm a maximizer. I look to see what C and D options I can build in and make sure those are part of it. And, it, you know, if it, and, and, and it, it does end up becoming pretty frustrating. So I, I do try to, when there are other people involved, outsource it and let, you know, like for example, let my wife be the one to make that decision. Um, as to when do we leave as well? Like, you know, just, just tell me where to be and what needs to happen. <laughs> that's how I like to travel. Stuff. Like, let me just follow someone and I have to yeah. think. Well, that's why though, because of, but here's the thing, right? This is, I used to be a, when I was in school, I, I ended up becoming a really, really successful, um, uh, nightclub, um, promoter. And so in doing so, what it was, was I was able to talk to people and just sort of, I guess, 
I was able to listen and just hear what they wanted. And, and, and I was also very honest about sort of what I thought. And I realized what gets me into some of the trouble I get into is this sort of charm that has, it's been called charm by sort of like, uh, but I once, I once had a, one of the assistants, they, uh, she was the guidance counselor assistant. I once had her <laughs> type up a presentation that I was going to give an hour from <laughs> class because, and, she, and, and one day she just said, oh, you think you're charming. And it wasn't that, but I guess maybe that's part of it. So instead of spending the time an hour, you know, a day earlier and getting it done and printing it and finding the printer and doing all that, I was able to convince this woman who had been like a real, like a mentor and friend to type the stuff up for me. Like <laughs> who does that in high school? <laughs> and so years later, I'm going to be late to the flight, but uh, I can, I can, I can, I can explain this. I can, I can, I, I can kind of relate out. to that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, what I try to do now is sort of put that hat away when dealing with and working with other people who might have that, that tendency and explain that, you know what, the consequences are such that you can do this, but let's build in things to minimi- minimize yeah. what could happen to you. So I'll give you a real simple example, which is like life insurance, right? It, it's like, I'm not trying to plug like anything I do on any of my companies. I'm just saying is think about it. Like every, I think most people of a certain age, like if you're over 30, like it's something that is so cheap and, 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 and eliminates so much risk that it allows you to go do other things. So what I say is this, we know this, this is algorithmic. What's the death rate? hundred percent. You know what's going to happen. So I know what's going to happen. So I was like, you know what? This is one area where, you know what? I can outsource this to the smart people. They've already figured this out. If you know you're going to die, something's going to, either you're going to either, when you die, one of two things will happen. You are going to help or you're going to hurt in mm. terms of like finances. Mm. So I, coming from a place of like, you know, growing up with, you know, on welfare and wanting to be like, not, do that and not and having like lost family members including two brothers and seeing the devastation it causes i was like i am not i i want to leave a legacy when i'm gone Mm. not leave like additional strains that comes with the pain of me already being gone so early on in my life i decided like i'm going to make sure i do this i'm going to tell the people about it and then i did more research and i ended up learning how to maximize it for financial like for financial gain so you know it's like and that's that's what I mean by so the logic of so yes I'm not a logician by nature, but there is certain things I've trained myself to do like higher level bigger chunks so that I can take the risks in the middle because you, you learn that you could see these things you, you connect these dots sort of intuitively mm-hmm. naturally using that your your both logic and the way you, you just approach uh, like just knowing what your skills are like. Getting in, into the weeds of the details probably isn't, you know, the thing that you're you're best at, depending on the context, right? But seeing a big overarching uh, picture and seeing how things connect in ways that might not be obvious to to other people, um, but but you can see that. 
Um, and I, I do think that that is a, a common uh, uh, sort of uh, um, intellectual uh, characteristic of individuals with with ADHD. That you know, it's sort of that di- that divergent thinking um, versus that linear thinking. Um, we tend to not be very linear thinkers, which is you know it creates challenges in some areas. But I think that when we when we really are are uh, shining with our divergent thinking. All those linear thinkers are like, wow, how'd you see that? How'd you do that? Right. So it's like knowing, owning what you're good at and like being okay with not being so great at, at uh, other things. Um, so we're getting, we are getting close to the end here. So I wanted to shift gears for just a minute to, uh, cause I, cause I wanted to talk to you, um, about ADHD and race. Right. So it's one of these things and when you and I had talked, um, uh, during the pre-interview, um, I've shared a few. It's like when I go to these these ADHD conferences, you know, it's it's kind of like a sea of white people, right? And it's like I know, and we know that it, it affects. You know, doesn't matter what race you are, doesn't matter where you're from. Like the ADHD rights are the same across you know every race, color, ethnicity, culture. So, speaking for your, yourself and your own experience, what has it been like being a person with ADHD? who is black and, and being kind of starting to come out about this. Being black uh, um, and itself and, and, and many in a white majority country in itself poses any significant number of challenges on its own. It's, mm-hmm. it's a, it's the class in, in creative survival often and uh, people think uh, you know some might think I'm, I'm, I'm being uh, dramatic but l- if you look at the rates of um, juvenile or you look at the high schools and middle schools and the numbers of students that get expelled suspended it, the numbers overwhelmingly against uh, mm-hmm. students of color Overwhelmingly, yeah. it's 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 massive. Like it's just it, no 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 algorithm could justify the disparities. Right. So um, what I had going for me is a a tough foreign mother who was not going to allow who'd experienced a lot and survived a lot and was not going to let someone else dictate what her life the life chances of her son. And so even when I got to Canada, uh, they tried to move me back a grade based on an accent. And though my test scores were off the charts, when I was scoring to above kids in gifted programs, one teacher basically said it. Oh, she said, I think her statement was, oh, he's probably out copying someone's homework when I was sitting there in the back. Oh, yeah. This is in a gifted school, high school in Canada. And the chance, the reason I was in a gifted school was because of the neighborhood I was in just happened to be at the line of the edge of the line of where you can go. Had it not been for that, I would have been in another um, class where, you know, chances were not as great of getting to university. So being Black with ADHD Coming out and sharing it was something I did after feeling like I could not be myself in so many ways. And so I 
I don't know. I think I told my mom and she first wanted to keep it quiet because, you know, we're, we're West African. We don't, we don't talk about anything like <laughs> publicly, nothing, like nothing at home comes out. And I was growing up at a different age and I just said, look, I got a little confident. I said, mom, the reason I was doing all those things, I was in 31 clubs is ADHD. It wasn't like, you know, these are things that it's, there's a negative, but it's not all negative. So I, I didn't share it. Like tell my friends, Hey guys, you should know about this about me. But when an article came out in a paper um, based on something I was doing um, with my old university, it sort of, I shared it with sort of like colleagues at a university. It, a lot of people just said, that's great. Like, thanks for, I didn't know what this was. That's, that, and for my closest friends was, oh, that explains a bit. <laughs> but it doesn't change anything about the relationship at all. Right? It, and so for me, after that, I was like, oh, okay, this isn't so bad. Now, mind you, I was working at a very, very old called White Shoe Law Firm. And I struggled just in sort of navigating some of the things required of you because of the ADHD. And I was going to ask you, well, what is the, like, what's the most common uh, ask, common job, job description requirement? And you see it about them. Detail-oriented. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I could come up with some of like a, an amazingly powerful argument for something that, you know, with some wordsmithing would do great <laughs> things. But, you know, and the, the, the kind of caliber of clients we had, you could not have the, the, the space and after the dots less than two, like that was that critical. And it was, it was a real struggle to sort of fit into an environment like that. And um, I, I one day kind of showed, this is what ADHD and sort of being out about it allowed me to do for the Black Tie Affair to celebrate 140 years of existence. Uh, black tie, mind you, everyone is in black and white. I, I wore a lime green <laughs> bezeled, uh, what we call a fugu. It's a traditional outfit from Ghana. Okay. Okay. And I just said, this is, this is who I am because my thinking was if I can't, you might not know, I might not know who you are. You might have a sense of who I might be, but you're going to know who I am. And my vision, I wanted to make it plain. And being ADHD, ADHD, I'm black. Um, it, it, the, the, the challenge there is the, there's a taboo that often comes with it if it's identified. And when it's not identified, in some cases, it's seen as sort of a defect or, or a, a bad child or, mm. a, you know, someone. And, and, it, and what it turns into is streaming. Like, we just put these kids, oh, they have athletic ability. Let's play with that. Let's, let's push them to that. If, if, if they're, you know, they're sort of uh, they're liberal about it and want to be helpful. When they don't, they want to punish and penalize. Mm-hmm. And without the foundation of the support I got from my mother and, and the guidance counselor's secretary, not the guidance counselors, they thought I should be going to college uh, or sorry, community college because they didn't bother to spend time to look at either my grades or sort of what I was doing. Mm-hmm. They just thought automatically that's what I was. But my my secretary, who the, the, the in the guidance council office, who saw me and interacted with me and thought maybe this kid's got something, 
would sneak me applications for scholarships, one of which I won. That's awesome. That paid for university. Yeah. So it, it was a lot of serendipity. Um, and I think part of me coming out to share this is to sort of share for with others and give others the opportunity to come out about some of the challenges that they have. Because it doesn't, your friends remain your friends. And in fact, those who are your friends will become even closer. The people who care about you ideally will sort of learn to understand that there's some things that they will have to communicate to you in certain ways to maximize. But they'll also, but they also, you know, you'll, you'll find yourself a, a community. Ideally, that will help you get there. But then you can go figure out who you are, what your strengths are, and what kind of life you should design for yourself. So maybe detail-oriented may not be where you need to be, but it doesn't mean that you can't have people around you who are to help you get those things done. So you can focus on being the best person, the best whatever blank you can be. And, and you can also learn to sort of outsource the bigger decisions to the, the pros and let them so that you're, you're free to figure out, you know, yourself in your, in your pond. It's all about creating your own path. Yeah. Well, I think it's not a choice anymore. That's in this world. It's not a choice to create your own path. Either you create it or you'll be put off on one you really don't like. Yeah, and, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. Okami, thank you so much. This has been uh, been a great conversation. Uh, I um, I think that a lot of listeners are going to get a lot of value out of it. You come from a, a very different uh, sort of perspective. Have some really awesome. I didn't know about this fire story. I'm like, there's, there's probably more <laughs> stories like that. But unfortunately, we are, we are uh, out of time here. So, any final thoughts or that you want to leave listeners with, or uh, anything that you want to leave them with, including any uh, contact information that you want. To have. Yeah, sure. Um, and I've talked to about this. I struggle with the sort of the managing Facebook and some other social media and people say Twitter. I, I have one, but good luck finding me there. <laughs> it's I try to have other people work some of those things out. So uh, Scotch Palm, like Scotch whiskey and palm of your hand is the name of sort of my my firmware. Um, so you can contact me through that. I'm I'm Kwame.dugan uh on the show notes um my name at scotchpalm.com if you want to uh, send me an email and i'm on linkedin you know if you just say you saw or you you know you heard me on uh on your show and then i i'm i'll get to it at some point but you know i i know who i am and i know who i am <laughs> so you might not get a response necessarily for our first time um i'm still working on on putting the infrastructure in place for those things, but I also yeah. find value in in in, in person and in meetings and in sort of engaging uh, in certain ways. So uh, I know social media engagements don't are not fulfilling uh, for me, but um, uh, I am I, I do wish I do want to help, and especially for small business owners who sort of have questions about you know uh, anything really. Uh, that's what my advice is, and I you know I provide. Uh, legal counsel and strategy to small businesses. And um, a lot of them are ADHDers. Cool. Well, Kwame, thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. Wait, uh, thank you for having me. And thank you for what you do as well. I really appreciate it. And uh, you have value uh, on a very consistent basis, which is, which is difficult. I'm sure. 
the consistency of it anyway. I, I, you know, to be honest, I've been I've been probably just as surprised as everybody else has been how how consistent I've been at this podcast. Uh, it's like, wow, I just keep going. It's it's uh, yeah, it's you know, it's it's the power of when you love what you do. Like it doesn't feel like work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're designed. You're, you're designed the life right. to allow that to happen. That's, right. that's, that's the, the, whole the thing. idea of bending the world to us, because the yeah. world's not going to bend the other way. No, no. All right. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. All right. Take care. Have a good day. This is Eric Tivers. Thank you for listening, and congratulations for making it to the end. ADHD Rewired is more than just a podcast. We are a community focused on learning, growing, and connection. The website is ADHDrewired.com. You can find summaries and additional resources for each episode. Learn more about the ADHD Rewired Coaching and Accountability Group and sign up for my email newsletter to get exclusive content that you won't get anywhere else. It's all at ADHDrewired.com. Com. Support ADHD Rewired and help replenish our coaching group scholarship fund by becoming a monthly patron at patreon.com slash ADHD Rewired. Different levels of support get different perks. You can give just a buck or three or five bucks a month or more. Every little bit helps. And it's an awesome way for you to let me know that you value this show the community, and everything else we do. That's patreon.com slash ADHD Rewired. You can follow me on Twitter at Eric Tivers. Subscribe to ADHD Rewired on YouTube to see select interviews and other videos I've made. The ADHD Rewired community is now a secret group on Facebook, so that's one less reason to not just be a passive listener, but to be an active member of our community. Fill out our short screening form at our website, ADHDrewired.com. We screen everyone before they join. Podcasts change lives. You can make a difference in someone's life by spreading the word about this podcast. Mention it in your online communities or on Facebook, Twitter, Reddit, Quora, or wherever you hang out online. And be sure to share it with your friends, your family, your clients, as well as your coaches, therapists, and doctors. If you're a member of Chad or any other ADHD support group, be sure to tell them about this podcast. You can even show them how to download it on their phone or even do it for them. And if you really love this episode, please hit share on your podcast player. I'm only one person and I count on you to help me spread the message. One of the biggest things you really can do to support this podcast and to help other people discover it is to leave an honest rating and review on the Apple Podcast app or on Stitcher or any other podcast app that supports and accepts ratings and reviews. Looking for more ways to listen and learn? Get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial at Audible by going to audibletrial.com slash ADHD Rewired. Need some ideas on where to start other than Brene Brown's Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong, or her six-hour recorded workshop, The Power of Vulnerability? Then I would recommend The One Thing by Gary Keeler. 
Oh, and if you by any chance know Brene Brown, please let her know how grateful I am for all of her work and what she means to me and the ADHD community, and that she's welcome on my show anytime. And in the one in like 7 billion chance that Brene, you're listening, please come and be a guest. Thanks. This is Eric Tivers reminding you, keep learning, keep growing, and keep connecting. And no matter how hard it all feels, remember, we can do hard things. Until next time.